A series on the Bible is a daunting task for a preacher. I hope you've appreciated Brooks throughout this past few months here at Southside. Uh, we're, we're a lucky church to have a preacher who can handle something like that. I have never been one of these people, those of you who know me, who will sit in church and talk back to the preacher while they're speaking. I'm not one to shout out amen or anything like that. But I remember very early in this sermon series, leaning over to my wife, Jill, we were in the back listening to one of the first sermons in this series, and I actually said, I wish I was that kind of person. Because there have been numerous times over the past two months where I wish I was. I have appreciated Brooks and what he's done with this series on the Bible until today. <laughs> he always manages to find time away around difficult topics. A few years ago, he uh, emailed me and said, are you available on such and such a date? I said, yes, I can help you out. What's the topic? And he said, the Trinity. You'll have 25 minutes to solve the most unfathomable mystery of the Christian faith for the church. Okay. Today, the topic is the authority of the Bible. It's a conclusion to a pretty long series where we've looked at what the Bible is, what it does, what it can do, how to read it better, how to pray it, how to memorize it. But today we're answering the question about why we would spend two months doing that. And it's because we believe the Bible is authoritative in some way. Thank you for coming. No. <clears throat> That's not really what we're concerned about, right? What we're concerned about is how the Bible is authoritative. Okay? The passage I want to look at to just start today is at the end, the very end of Matthew's Gospel. You know it as the Great Commission if you've been around church for any amount of time in your life. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's called his disciples to Galilee, and they've gathered around him for some parting words. And here's what he said. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and use that Bible to defeat those who disagree with you theologically, forcing them to conform to the truth as you see it. And remember, your perception of your correctness is more important than what anyone else thinks. Okay, I'm glad you understand Jesus didn't say that. <laughs> But isn't that what some of us think he said? No, it, it, it goes like this, right? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and divide the church over inconsequential matters of nuance and interpretation, making sure to tell everyone in your group that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And remember, the less charitable you can be toward other people who claim to be Christians only proves how right you are. Well, that's certainly not Jesus, is it? But don't some of us think that's what he said? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and read it for yourself apart from any church community, ignoring all the experts and skipping over obviously difficult issues so as to arrive at easy answers. And remember, not thinking too deeply about your faith is the key to being a faithful Christian. <laughs> okay, just so we're clear, that's not Jesus. 
But isn't that what some of us think that he said? Or maybe this one. All, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and weaponize it so that it aligns with your political ideology, making sure to rally your voting block every few years. And remember, I already agree with your political ideology in every way. The Bible clearly supports my politics, right? Or this one. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and treat the Bible as an answer book, consulting it with any sort of contemporary issue or question. And remember, when you find the answers you're looking for, you have become a biblical Christian. And Jesus came and said to them, Maybe we think this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Go, therefore, and treat it as an instruction guide for setting up churches, critiquing others for not following it as you have. And remember, you can safely ignore your own inconsistencies in applying it to your church situation. That is not what Jesus said to his disciples with his parting words. Here's what he said. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the end of the age. What, or maybe better, who, is the final authority for Christians? Jesus is. Now, that's actually the answer to the question we're looking at today. How is the Bible authoritative? I'm working with a definition that I've gotten from Tom Wright in his book, Scripture and the Authority of God. This is the premise that I'm working with. He says this, The phrase, the authority of Scripture, can make Christian sense only if it is shorthand for the authority of the triune God exercised somehow through Scripture. Do you hear it? How is the Bible authoritative for us? It is authoritative because God himself chooses to exercise his authority through it. That's how. What that definition does is take the inadvertent idolatry we commit with the Bible off the table when we elevate it to the status of God and Christ, or even more in some instances. The Bible's authority is derivative. Its source of authority is God, not the book or the words themselves. It's God who exercises authority through it. In looking at that and what that means for us as a church and as Christians, I want to suggest that that works itself out in two interconnected ways. The first is this. The Bible is authoritative for our corporate life together. Again, referring to Tom Wright in his book, he says, From the very beginning, the Bible has been given a key place in the church's worshiping life 
indicating that it's been understood not only as part of the church's thinking, but also as part of the church's praise and prayer. Our default setting, I think, when we come to corporate worship on Sunday is that this should be an emotive experience. Yes, of course. But when scripture's involved, worship is both emotive and cognitive. That is, we both feel something and we think something. The historic point of Christian worship has been to shape the lives of worshipers, believers, after the pattern of the gospel. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. When we come together, we enter into that story as a group. And worship is meant to realign our thoughts toward God. We have two incredible gifts that most Christians throughout history and many in the world today didn't or don't have. A Bible and the ability to read it. We live at a very odd moment in Christian history. You may not be aware of this, but most Christians throughout history for the 1900 plus years there has been a church couldn't read and they didn't have a Bible. I have heard it said that an individual with a Bible and no church is a very dangerous thing. I would contend that personal and private reading, as important as it is, and I do value that, I do it myself, is always secondary to our reading together. Once again, Tom Wright says this, the flying sparks of prayerful interpretation can still, alas, lead us astray. Again, as valuable as personal reading can be, we absolutely need this church to guide that reading. A central part of that is when we come together to retell, to realign ourselves in worship. And we do that through interaction with Scripture. The first way is reading. We put Scripture on the screen. We regularly begin worship with a call to worship that comes from scripture. During this entire sermon series, we've been reading large sections of Psalm 119 together. That's not just to fill time. That shouldn't be boring. Okay? That is one of the key ways that God chooses to shape his people. When the exiles came back to Jerusalem in the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah in your Old Testament, one of the first things they did, Ezra stood up And he read scripture to the community. Again, to shape those people, to form those people into obedient believers. All the way down into the New Testament, Paul's churches. He instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. Give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhorting and to teaching. One of the central ways for God to speak to his people is the reading of scripture aloud in worship. But there are two other ways as well that happen when we come together. One is singing. You may not think of singing, and Scripture is going hand in hand, but they do. I was joking with Brooks a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about this sermon series, getting ready for today, all the calendar issues that have come up. And I said, you understand that people are going to learn more about theology from the songs that we sing in church than from your sermons. Yes. (laughs) 
Here's how I know that happens. Every year I lead a group of students from Lincoln Christian University out to the New England states to work with churches out there. That trip occurs immediately after our midterm exams and grades are due. A few years ago, all ten of the students that were on the trip with me had just finished a midterm exam in a class called New Testament 2. That's a survey course of Romans through Revelation, a Bible class. The average exam grade in that class that year was a D. Now, we all loaded up, we flew to Boston, we got in a 15-passenger van. They took a cable, plugged a phone in, turned the radio on, and I was stunned. All ten students knew the words to every single song. It didn't matter what genre it was. It didn't matter who was singing it. Songs I'd never heard before by people I've never heard about before. They knew every single word. And it was then that I realized that songs get into our brains and our hearts in ways that words don't. Singing together in worship, are you paying attention? Because a lot of these songs that we sing are scripture. And it's a way that God forms us. A second way, other than reading and singing, third way is preaching. Tom Wright, again. Preaching is one key way in which God's personal authority, vested in Scripture and operative through the work of the Spirit, is played out in the life of the church. Again, Brooks is not up here filling time 25 minutes every Sunday. God is actually exercising God's authority through him. My father-in-law is a professor of preaching at Lincoln. He was leading a doctoral seminar on issues in preaching a few weeks ago, and he had a group of preachers in front of him, and he just asked a very simple question. Why do you preach? They discussed, and the correct answer to the question is very simple, to help lead a church to God's preferred future for it. Reading, singing, preaching. We are fortunate to have here at Southside a pastoral staff who attend to all of these facets of biblical authority. The Bible is authoritative for this church, not as a how-to manual, but as an aid to our worship that shapes our thought world so that we can be about the work of God in the world. It's an almost ridiculous thing to say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not a Christian. Or, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Those sorts of things have no place in historic Christianity. The Bible is authoritative for the church because God works through it to lead us together into his kingdom work in the world. Our weekly reading, our singing, our preaching motivates and shapes what happens in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our schools, Monday through Saturday. It reincorporates us into the gospel story as told through interaction with Scripture. The church is not just a cultural thing to do on Sunday morning or a place to hang out with our friends. It is the ordering of our lives together through interaction with Scripture. And so the first way the Bible is authoritative is for our corporate life so that we can be about the work of God in the world. The second is this. The Bible is authoritative for our theological thinking. That is, it points us toward God and Christ. There is an incredibly frightening passage of scripture 
in the New Testament, especially for a Bible professor like me. And it should be for most Bible-believing Christians. It's in John chapter 5. Now, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but I'll set the context. Jesus is engaged in a debate with religious people because he wasn't following the Bible like they thought he should. He healed a person on the Sabbath. That happens quite regularly in the Gospels. Now, that seems like a good thing, but if we're being honest, it could have waited a day. The story in John 5 tells us that guy had been paralyzed for 38 years. Just wait, right? And any time, if you've read the Gospels, Jesus does anything on the Sabbath, he starts a fight. And rightly so. Because if we're going to be biblical, the Bible clearly prohibits doing stuff on the Sabbath. And so controversy ensues. Jesus gives a speech about his authority to do such things on the Sabbath. And here's what he says to those religious people who knew the Bible so very well and who were so very biblical. It's John 5, 39 and 40. And this is what scares me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You hear it? They missed Jesus because they were so preoccupied with the Bible. The Bible is authoritative not because it's an end in and of itself, but because it points us toward God and Christ. Baseball season started this past week. I'm an Orioles fan, as some of you know. Lived in Baltimore, grew up in Maryland my whole life. When I was a pastor in Baltimore, I used to go to opening day every year with friends. It was 2005. Me and three guys from the church, we loaded up. We were headed downtown. We were going to the game. And that year, the Orioles raised parking prices from 5 or $10 to 20 or $25 which only got more because opening day games happened in the middle of the work day and Camden Yards is downtown, so you could pay $40 or more just to park a car for a ball game. My friend said, hey, I know a guy who lives over here in Federal Hill just a few blocks down the street. Why don't you come park in front of his apartment? Well, that sounds perfect. So we pulled up, parked on the street, no problem. Went to the game, we won, came back, And there was a little slip of paper under the windshield wiper. I pulled it out. And that day it cost me $70 to park the car. (laughs) Now, why did I pay that ticket? It's not because of the slip of paper itself, right? I've seen people get those on their car, pull it out from under the windshield wiper, crumple it up, throw it on the street, drive away. Why do you pay that ticket? Because that's a slip of paper that the city uses to exercise its authority. There are ramifications for not paying attention to that authority. Court costs, license problems, insurance rates. It's the same with the Bible. It points us to someone else's authority 
Christian Smith, a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, in a book called The Bible Made Impossible, says this. Instead of those popular religion approaches to the Bible, which are so often used for humanly driven therapeutic purposes, that is that we are concerned primarily oftentimes when we read the Bible with our own issues rather than God's, he says, are so inadequate to a truly evangelical approach. He goes on and says, we can get back into the position of being acted upon by God through the words of Scripture. More pointedly, I would say, the Bible is authoritative not because it's an answer book for all of our questions, my concerns, but for cultivating a life of wisdom in order to follow Christ in my own time and place. Smith continues, So much different from offering helpful tidbits for how to biblically dress, garden, cook, budget, parent, run a business, everything else. This approach, that is letting the Bible point us toward God in Christ, this approach positions the living God in relation to Scripture as one who through its humanly written utterances actively promises, confronts, beckons, comforts, invites, commands, explains, encourages, and much else in ways that personally address every reader. When we interact with the Bible, what we ought to be looking to do is be like Jesus. The Bible's authority, I would say, is only properly exercised when we stop trying to be biblical and start trying to be Christ-like. Being biblical is not the goal. Let me explain before you pick up stones to stone him, okay? which would be a biblical thing to do. Let me illustrate this, actually. How many of you have children? <clears throat> All right. Keep your hands up for a second, those of you with children. How many of you have your children said something mean about you? Okay. How many of you have done the biblical thing and killed your children because of it? <clears throat> Now, why did you not follow the Bible in that instance? See, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9, and Exodus 21, verse 17 are quite clear. If a child curses his or her parent, they shall be put to death. I'm guessing you instinctively knew that was not the Christ-like way. Right? I would guess we would know, even, even praying a blessing over those people who would kill the children of our enemies, as Psalm 137 does. Blessed is the one who dashes the heads of their little ones against the rocks. Do you instinctively know that is not the Christ-like way? It's in the New Testament, too. Acts chapter 15. Should Gentile Christians be circumcised? The Bible is quite clear on that. All of the Old Testament says, yes. If you want to become a member of the people of God, you must do this thing. Be circumcised. And the church gets together. Jewish Christians, 
Gentile Christians. They're in Jerusalem. They have a debate with James and Peter and John and Paul and Barnabas and the rest. And you know what they decide? You can go read it. It's in Acts 15. These Gentile Christians don't have to follow the Bible in this instance. They don't have to be circumcised. Even Jesus shows us that being biblical is not the goal. Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. Fair enough. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Most of us are all set in that regard. But Jesus says, I say to you, that's not enough. You must not hate your brother or sister. And if they've done anything wrong, go sort it out and be reconciled to them. Jesus goes on. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Fair enough. Again, one of the Ten Commandments. But that's not enough. Because if you've lusted after someone else, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've heard it said, and Jesus quotes Scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Take revenge. Equal revenge, but revenge. Jesus says, no, no. That's not enough. Turn the other cheek. When we approach the Bible, I use this analogy with the training elective on how to read the Bible that I was teaching a few weeks ago here at Southside. We have in our minds that what God does with the Bible is set us on a balance beam. And we have to very carefully and slowly place one foot in front of the other And God's waiting for one little misstep. And we fall off. And the whole thing's over. But the Bible presents another picture, actually. What God does is not set us on a balance beam. But puts us on a path. Psalm 119, 105. This has come up several times in this series. Your word. Your teaching. Your Torah, your law, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You hear it? The word, the law, the Torah, the teaching, is not the path itself. It illuminates the path of your life. Jesus says something quite similar in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Everyone, Jesus says, is on a path. path of destruction, a path to life. And the way to life is not simply knowing a bunch of Bible information, but actually living it out, allowing it to point us to God and Christ. Our goal in interacting with the Bible should be to answer this question. What is the Christ-like way? And that brings us full circle. Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so go. Teach. Baptize. Help people obey. 
It is Christ who has ultimate authority. The teachings about Jesus, many of which are contained in our Bibles, point people toward obedience. The message today, the message of this entire series, is actually very simple. Why do we read the Bible and study the Bible and think about the Bible and sing the Bible and pray the Bible and memorize the Bible? To better follow Jesus. And if we can do that, then I think we've gotten the Bible right.